Our fifth lesson comes from the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 31. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord. The grain, the new wine, and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and the herds, they will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then young women will dance and be glad, and young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome again to In Town. If you're new here visiting with us, we're wrapping up our Advent, now Chris, then Christmas, now Epiphany season, uh, with a, a series called Longing for More, that in some way the longings that we have aren't ever fully satisfied, aren't ever fully satiated here, that they're meant to point us beyond. They're meant to raise our eyes to something beyond what we can experience in our world. And this morning, we're looking at this idea of longing for home, that in some way that we're all spiritual exiles looking for home. So that's what we're going to consider as we look at Jeremiah. And we'll start a new series next week. If you're on email, I'll tell you about it. If you're not, it'll just be a big surprise for you next week. Um, But let me pray for us as we get started. Father, as we come now and consider your word in more depth, as we reflect upon this passage that is quite ancient, quite old, and in some places quite difficult to understand, I pray that you would give us eyes to see what we need to see, ears to hear what we need to hear, not just what we want to see and what we want to hear. Father, I pray that you will help us to seek our way out of whatever captivity we find ourselves that we would seek our way out in you, whether it's captivity of sin, of shame, of unrealistic expectations, either ours or those that others put on us, whether we're captive by addiction, whether we're captive by our past, whether we're captive by a future that we hope will change our present. Lord, I pray that you would show us through these words that you gave to Jeremiah so many years ago, how we might as spiritual exiles, find a home in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have heard of a a novelist and essayist named Pico Iyer. He has uh, written a great deal on this idea, this changing concept of home in our very globalized and hyper-connected culture. And he said in a TED Talk last year, he said, when my grandparents were born, they pretty much had their sense of home their sense of community, even their sense of enmity assigned to them at birth. 
And they didn't have much chance of stepping outside of that. And nowadays, at least some of us can choose our sense of home. We can create our sense of community. We can fashion our sense of self. Maybe that resonates with you because that's why so many of us are here in Portland. That Portland as a, as a city, and maybe even more so as a concept, is so appealing that many of us have left our home, left the place that we've grown up to come and try to create a home here. And by virtue of living in the 21st, extent, 21st century, maybe extended by the fact that so many of us come from somewhere else, we're, we're newly arrived here, we're migrants of some sort, that we're seeking something, that we're relatively rootless, we're exiles seeking a place that we can call home. Well, Jeremiah is writing to exiles, and he's writing to people who have been alienated and exiled not by their choice, but because they have been taken into captivity. They've been taken out of their homeland into Babylon, and they're seeking a place to call home. In fact, their concept of home is something they've left that they want to return to. They want to go back to this land of promise. But Jeremiah is using this real historical circumstance to frame this concept that we are all spiritual exiles, that we're all looking for home in some way, that they weren't longing simply for a strip of land, but in their imagination, the promised land was where God was. It's where he lived, and they wanted to be with him. And they did return. It tells us in verse 16 that God gave this promise to Jeremiah, they will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. And this happened historically. Few people debate this. You can read about it in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which is at the very tail end of your Old Testament, or you can look it up on Wikipedia. But notice the language. Notice the language is not just about them returning to physical land, but the promises are over, over the top. They sound utopian. He promises rejoicing. He promises dancing. He promises gladness. He promises comfort. He says that they'll shout for joy and there'll be no more sorrow whatsoever. The physical return happens, but this doesn't seem like in any stretch of the imagination happened in Israel or has happened to us. So we have to conclude one of two things. Either Jeremiah doesn't know what he's talking about. He just has this pie-in-the-sky dream that is never going to be realized. But if we discount him, then we have to discount a great deal of the Old Testament. Ezekiel, Isaiah, a great many of the minor prophets talk about this coming time that's not just a, a physical return, but it's a return home from some sort of spiritual exile where there will be no more sorrow. Or that there's still a fulfillment of this prophecy that's yet to come. That Israel coming back to their land com was completed, but was, it was only an image. It was a picture of a coming fulfillment. Which would mean then that what God is promising is the end to a much deeper exile. That there's a deeper need that we all have that land won't satisfy. That money won't satisfy. That family, children, career, Portland won't ultimately fulfill. He says in verse 11, For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. What does this mean? It means that there's something 
that we need that we can't fulfill on our own. That our longings point to something that is far beyond our ability to ascertain and grasp and hold on to. That we can't find our way home again on our own. It means that we need to be delivered. We need to be led home. And if Jeremiah is correct, and obviously I think he is, I'm standing up here giving my life to this prospect, there is one who wants to lead us home. Not by coercion, not by just laying out a strategy or a new spirituality which you then comply by and you find your way home, you navigate your way home, but he takes hold of us. He wants to lead us home, deliver us with motherly tears. Now, where does this come from? There's a very peculiar verse here in the middle of Jeremiah that maybe you thought, what in the world is he talking about? And it's 15. He says, this is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. What does that mean? What's very difficult to parse, and I read probably a dozen commentaries on this that had a little bit of a different perspective on things, but overall, what this means, there are three times that the Bible talks about Rachel's tears. There's Genesis 38, there's here, and then there's Matthew chapter 2. In Genesis 38, if you remember from our study from a few years ago of Genesis, Jacob, who is the, the son of Isaac, he was on the run from his brother Esau. And he goes to his cousin's land, cousin's land in the Padam Aram, and he meets this amazing, exquisite, beautiful woman named Rachel that he falls madly in love with. And he agrees to work for seven years in order to earn her, in order for her to be given to him. But then he's tricked, and he gets Leah instead and has to work for seven more years in order to get Rachel. And so during this time, Leah was very fertile. Leah, Leah had had many children, but Rachel was, had not. She was the one that was desired physically, but she was unable to get pregnant. She finally had a son, son named Joseph, who was the, the one from the coat of many colors, and now is pregnant with Benjamin, or who would become Benjamin. And Jacob finally says, I've had it. I'm going back to my homeland. I'm taking all of my property, and I'm taking Rachel with me back to the promised land. But they have to stop because in those days, if you're giving birth, there's no ambulance to come and take you to the hospital. The whole party stops, the whole entourage. And what happens to Rachel? She dies. She dies giving birth to who would become Benjamin. But it, when she dies... She names him Ben-Oni, son of mourning, son of my tears. The second time is in our passage in Jeremiah that Rachel's tears are mentioned. But what's happening in Ramah is very different than what was happening in Genesis 38. Because in 38, there are tears in Ramah because Rachel had died on her way to the promised land. Here, People are dying on their way to captivity. Ramah is a way station for people that are going into exile. It's a completely different type of tears. And you can imagine the weeping that comes from being exiled, that comes from this loss of home, this loss of stability, loss of status of work and community. 
Somehow what Jeremiah is saying is that Rachel's tears are representative of this sort of exile, of being exiled from home, this homelessness that we all feel. Regardless of if we feel like we're on the way to the promised land, if we can just get there, if we can get the new job, if we can get the new spouse, if we're on our way, we feel homeless on our path, or if we're in captivity to something that's very specific. You see, Rachel had tried to make her way in the world by acquiring the right marriage. That was very important in the ancient world. And perhaps more important was offspring. It was children. It was descendants. And she was trying to make her way in the world to create her sense of home by having a home, by having children, by her fertility, and being desired above her sister Leah. She had this very competitive relationship with Leah. But she was blocked She was blocked from finding the meaning she longed for. Her sister had many children. Her sister wasn't nearly as beautiful as her, but she excelled her in all of the markers of meaning that that society assigned to people. And Rachel, because her meaning in life was based on this idea of children and on upstaging her sister, she died jealous and jaded and full of tears, refusing to be comforted. She died in exile, her deepest longings unfulfilled. But there's a third time. Rachel's tears appear in Matthew 2. And this is the Christmas passage. This is at the birth of Jesus where Herod is looking for the person that's been born king of the Jews. And Joseph is told to take Jesus, his son, out of Bethlehem because Herod is killing all the infants in order to kill Jesus. And his parents flee Jerusalem to Egypt, and children are murdered, and once again, mothers weep over the loss of children. And Jesus goes into exile. And Matthew says, in Jesus' exile, he quotes that particular verse and says, this is fulfilled. What the Bible is telling us is that Rachel's weeping is a weeping of exile. In a very stylized way, What Matthew is telling us is that Jesus is born in exile as an answer to Rachel's tears, to your tears, to your homelessness. And Jesus was always in exile. Even when He returned from Egypt, He returned to His his homeland. He's exiled from His religious heritage, from the religious authorities, from the comforts of this world, from a normal family life. And what does he say? Foxes have holes, birds have nests. The Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. He was literally and metaphorically homeless. He was an exile. Herod had sought to kill him but was unsuccessful. But Pilate finally does him in some 30 years later. And Luke tells us something very interesting because it says that when he approaches Jerusalem, nearing the end of his life, he knows he's going to the cross. This is the beginning of what's called Passion Week. And he sees Jerusalem. The, and like Jeremiah, he weeps. He weeps over it. He cries tears over Jerusalem. And Matthew says when he wept, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wished... I could take you how I wished. I could take you under my wings. 
we're coming back around to this idea of motherly tears because that's the language of a mother bird that Jesus is weeping deliberately like a mother, like Rachel weeping because she won't see her kids grow up, weeping because she feels exiled. Jesus is crying for a city that He loves which has been in exile. They have the land, but yet they don't have God because they have run from Him. They've lived intentionally in exile from Him. And Jesus weeps over the city, just like Jeremiah did. And like Rachel, He dies for His child. He will die in labor so that Jerusalem, so you and I, can be born again. He goes to a cross, which itself is outside the city, exiled from Jerusalem. He was cast out, and He was sent into ultimate exile to put an end to ours. Andrei Krubchek is a Russian uh, director, and in his 2005 film, The Italian, he makes this movie about a six-year-old abandoned boy. His name is Vanya. And he's enduring the severities and the injustices of a Russian orphanage. And a wealthy Italian couple comes to the orphanage looking to adopt a young boy. And they choose Vanya and make plans to take him back to their villa in Italy. And to, to Vanya's fellow orphans, it's an impossible dream come true to leave what seems like an endless winter in Russia, to go to Italy where the warm sun rises over fields of grapes and olives and figs. It's this dreamlike place, and he's offered a chance. But what Vanya discovers is that his biological mother is still alive, and she's in Russia. And he chooses not to go with this lovely family to lovely Italy, but instead he tries to find his mom because he knows somehow that home is where his mom is. So he escapes from the orphanage. He sneaks on a commuter train to the town that he believes his mom lives on. And he's pursued relentlessly by corrupt staff and corrupt police, but he refuses to give up hope. He's been exiled from his home, from his experience of belonging, of meaning and love. And this little boy risks everything to find it again. A kid named Anton is adopted in Vanya's place. He's adopted by the Italian couple, and they begin writing letters to one another. And in one of them, Vanya writes back, Hello, Anton. Thank you for your letter. I didn't know oranges grow where you live. Here it rains all the time, and it's freezing, but it's warm inside. Vanya didn't get the home of his dreams. He didn't get the good weather, the beautiful vistas, but he was willing to receive less than an ideal house freezing in Russia because that's where his mom was. That's where home was. She offered him a home that nothing, that no one else could give him, no worldly comfort could appropriate. Living in Italy would have been wonderful. However, it would have been incomplete and he would have felt like an exile. Don't we spend so much of our time, like Rachel, trying to soothe our sense of homelessness? Maybe like her, it's in having children, having beautiful, smart, well-adjusted, well-educated, successful children. That's what our goal is, and if that doesn't happen, we're destroyed. Maybe it's moving to an exciting place, 
a place that's deliberately different than where we grew up. Maybe like Pico Iyer, we're making these decisions in order to fashion a sense of ourself, our preferred self. We're trying to create a sense of home in the midst of our exiles. Exile. But friends, you know, vistas are great. The warm sun is fantastic. Living in a cool town with excellent food and beer is tremendous. But these things can never be our true home. Because our longings for home, the truest sense of home, these longings are far stronger than any of these things will ever be able to satiate. We're spiritual exiles and we're searching not simply for a piece of soil, but a piece of soul. We want rejoicing. We want dancing. We want gladness and comfort that never ends. We want to shout for joy. We want no more sorrow ever. You see, good things in this world hint at those things. They give moments of those things, glimpses, but they arouse but never satisfy. Were you paying attention when Kelly was reading lesson three? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's the home that each of us are looking for. And we go about trying to find it and create it in many different ways. But that's the home that will ultimately satisfy and the only home that will ultimately satisfy. And the wonderful thing is that it comes down. It comes down that God comes to dwell with us rather than us climb up. There's no ladder that He lays out. There's no spiritual pathway that He says, if you work hard enough, you will achieve this. He says, no, I come to you. I have cried tears over your exile and I want to end it, not just temporarily, but forever. And that's what Jesus does is he come and comes and makes his home among us while in exile, enduring spiritual exile so that he can put an end to ours. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that though we are exiles, that there is a hope in you that our future will not be cut off, that you ensure that it won't. Would you dry our tears because your son wept the bitterest tears of all? Your son was cast out so that we can know that you will bring us in. We pray that you would help us to live the kinds of lives that go along with that belief, with that knowledge. We pray that we would live lives of hope, a life, a life where we are linking arms with other people to introduce the world to that hope, that we would be light in dark places, even though we ourselves carry around hearts of darkness, would you shine your light upon us as well and change us and mold us? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.